Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. Um, a really interesting episode today, which we will get to in just a moment. Um, two things I want to call your attention to first. First off, I'm teaching a couple of more classes over at Script Anatomy. I'm doing an inter introductory class, which is called the Televisionary class. Um, this is the class. This is my. Th this will be my third time doing this class, and um, the first time I found it very difficult, and then the second time I really enjoyed it. Uh, maybe that is in part due to you know the students in the class, if they are great and interesting and collaborative, um, and I think that's you if you're listening to this podcast. Um, so I was invested in their their projects. But really, the class is super helpful. You know, it covers the basics of pilot writing. Uh, and it's the kind of stuff that I find myself, even as I'm teaching the class, like approaching my own work in a new way. It's really, really helpful. So that's a televisionary class. And that starts on September 10th and runs for five um, pretty much weekly sessions. Uh, really, really helpful, really good class. And then starting in October, the end of October, October 22nd, I'm doing the um, pilot draft intensive, which is the next class that makes sense to do after televisionary. But you can do this class if you've got yourself a really solid outline, regardless of whether you've taken the other class. Um, the draft intensive is three sessions. Every other week, it takes you from outline to first draft of your script. Uh, it's it's a fun class. It's a much smaller class because it is a much more collaborative class. Uh, I really enjoy doing that one. You can find both of those over on the Script Anatomy um, website. Uh, please sign up. I'd love to have some folks who who listen to the podcast in because they tend to be smart and uh, interesting people. All that information also is on the newsletter, which is really a lot of fun. Um, please go over to benblacker.substack.com and become a subscriber. We are doing uh, these live Zoom Q&As that you can join where you ask the questions and professional writers give the answers. Um, our next one is on the 15th of July with Jessica Gao, who you've heard on this podcast. Jessica is the showrunner for the She-Hulk TV series. Um, she's also worked on Rick and Morty, Robot Chicken, Silicon Valley, a whole bunch of fun stuff. She has so many great insights, uh, and I think it should be a really cool hour-long Q&A with Jessica. Um, again, the way to join that is to become a paid subscriber on the Substack, benblacker.substack.com. Supporting that newsletter is also a way of supporting this podcast, which uh, is always a little bit more work than I want it to be. It's definitely keeping me from doing some of the other work I ought to be doing, like the scripts I'm working on with friends. All right, the strike continues. We are in, I want to say, our 10th week as of this release. Maybe 11? I don't know. Listen, it's all become a blur. Um, I've got some interesting conversation um, coming up about the strike, but I've got some interesting conversation today with my friend Shoshana Sachi, who you know as uh, a writer on Doom Patrol. Uh, she worked on Dead Boys Detect Dead Boy Detectives, which will be out, I think, this year. Really smart writer, really insightful, has some great things to say about being creative um, during the strike, you know, and we talk about this a little bit, but so many of us are told, like, this is an opportunity to write something, right? You don't have to hustle right now. Go write the thing you've always wanted to write. Well, that's a lot of pressure. And Shoshana posted on Instagram uh, not too long ago that she's finding it really hard to be creative right now. And that really resonated with me. And I know with a lot of people, she mentioned after we stopped recording that a whole bunch of folks had gotten in touch with her about that. Um, so I wanted to have a somewhat longer discussion with Shoshana about, you know, trying to be creative right now and how we can do that, but also, you know, live our lives and <laughs> sort of take care of our mental health and our physical health for that matter. So uh, here's a, a brief chat with Shoshana Sachi uh, about creativity during the strike. You need song. You need battle, all at it all. What is all what we got now? You need song, you need battle, all at it all. 
Shoshana, thanks for chatting. Look, we're on strike now. Um, the thing you had posted somewhere was about um, having trouble being creative right now. You know, it feels like we have all of this time where, yes, we are picketing um, and going to rallies and stuff and supporting one another, but also like this is an opportunity for a lot of us to write something. Um, and you had said, you know, how difficult that is right now. What are you trying to accomplish? right now creatively with this time or are you just calling it a break for yourself um well when the strike started i mean even um since my last writer's room wrapped um in november of last year um i hadn't stopped working for about five years from doom patrol to dead boys um and even before that it's just been a hustle to get in and then to keep myself going and to keep climbing that ladder so I hadn't actually stopped to write anything of my own um so the sample I had and had been working on uh, is old now and it, it's it reflects kind of an older Shoshana um and I felt like I had learned so much and wanted to write something that reflected my voice now um as a 35 year old and you know everything else that I've experienced so um and also go back to kind of what I was really excited about in the beginning, which was I wanted to be a horror writer. So I decided, well, I'm going to try and write some horror samples if I can. Um, and especially when the strike happened, I was like, okay, well, this is the time to really kind of buckle down, I guess, and uh, try and do that. And so what is your sort of usual process, your usual way in? And then tell me about like how it's not working. Um, I, well, okay. Well, my usual process, I think, I mean, um, ideas, inspiration, I, I read a lot. I've been reading and well, listening to audiobooks a lot, um, because life is crazy and audiobooks is kind of the only way to kind of absorb as much as possible. Um, I start with characters. I start to dig down into characters and then, um, write an outline, um, and see what, my reps think, uh, and then just kind of start uh, blue skying from there and then writing an outline and then going to script. And so when you set out, you know, you've got presumably a bunch of ideas, things you want to start getting down. Yeah. What's what's not clicking? Because I think so many of us are finding this right now that like it's hard to get into the creative headspace. So is it a question of routine? Is it a question of, you know, psychology? What is what do you think is is getting in the way or or have you worked through it? Um, so I, I have and I haven't. Um, I think there's a couple of things um, that I two things that I can think of that is kind of a barrier personally. And the first first is I think something that a lot of writers can identify with right now which is we're just tired um and tired physically um because we have been non-stop working and we've all been taught that you know the, we're all under capitalism and need to hustle and and to keep going to keep trying keep climbing this endless ladder to nowhere and um so I think we're just tired and then we've hit this strike which is emotionally exhausting because we feel betrayed um by the people that we are creating for and the this industry that we are very much a part of building um so there's a lot of kind of um exhaustion and fatigue going on so it's hard to create and to write in a place of tired where you're feeling tired but also you're in this space of feeling emotionally betrayed um a friend of mine put it in terms of like, we're all in fight or flight mode right now. We don't know when it's going to end. We don't know what's happening. We don't know kind of what has happened to, is this kind of relationship between the people at the very top and then the people um, at the bottom kind of in the building breaks kind of. Um, so, and it's hard to create from a place of fear as well. So there's the, those kind of mental, physical blocks. Um, secondly, I think for me um, personally, I realized that I am kind of, because I don't think I ever stopped since I graduated from uh, my graduate program at UCLA, like six or seven years ago, I never stopped kind of trying to break in. And then I got in and then, you know, and, and I feel like all of a sudden the work has stopped and I'm still kind of operating in that 
am I good enough? Have I broken in? What else do I have to prove? And then, so there's all that kind of self-doubt that's um, in the way of creating freely. Um, And I think when I was, I've had lots of conversations with writers and especially writers who have done the graduate program. When you're in that space, when you're younger, you're just creating, you don't have kind of the fears of, um, is this good enough? Is this going to be good enough to continue my career or to break in, et cetera, et cetera. You're just kind of creating um, on a blank canvas. And so now that's kind of lost in a way. It can feel like this stuff matters so much, right? So I have to put all of my efforts into this thing because this could be the one, right? Yeah. Um, so how do you get yourself out of that headspace? That's a good question. I think I'm trying to kind of figure that out right now. Um, I'm trying to make space to enjoy kind of the free time that we have because a lot of people say, well, we're never going to have, we might never have this free time again. Um, And then it's like, well, what do I do with this free time? (laughs) Um, And I, when people ask me, when student writing students ask me, like, how do I, you know, get ideas or become creative enough to create or whatever it is. Um, I always tell them that it all comes back to kind of living experience. And then I'm hearing myself give that advice, but I'm not, but I'm kind of like forced shackling myself to my, my laptop and trying to create and force myself to create instead of taking time out and having unique life experiences. So I think I'm trying to hit the pause button a little bit to make space to do that, um, which is difficult to do because once again, it's we've been in the hustle for so long. Mm-hmm. I think it it is such a balance, right? You you need to do that time in front of your laptop, um, but you also need to go out and do things and see things and and experience the world. It's so easy to tip into one or the other. Mm-hmm. And, and I definitely find myself tipping into the latter, right? Like, oh, I have to go yeah. get more input. I have to go to a movie or I have to go hang out with friends. But like, there's something to be said for that time in front of the laptop. So so how are you finding that balance? Like, what are your, literally, what are your days look like as you're trying to write, but also live a life? Um, I mean, right. I've just kind of started that journey because I've realized that um, I have just so much self-doubt and, and I feel like I'm back. I'm still back at square one and I've, I'm forgetting that I've written 11 episodes of television. I'm, I feel like I'm still not in the game. Um, so I'm trying to now kind of create space. Like yesterday we went to the uh, Getty Villa and I'm trying to kind of um, add a little bit more like physical activity, like going for walks and hanging out with my dog and just kind of living and also experiencing the world as mindfully as I can, just kind of like observing and taking in and trying to live in the moment, which is really, really hard. Um, And not just kind of operating and just going A to B, but also looking around. And Do you feel something switch in you? Like, is there are you waiting for a moment to sit down and write or are you giving yourself that time and sort of like forcing fingers on a keyboard? Um, forcing fingers on a keyboard is tough for me sometimes. I think if I, when I was, when I'm working, um, it's a lot easier, but when it, it comes out of my own brain and therefore my own spirit, my own soul, whatever it is, um, it needs to be a little bit more organic and I need to really be in love with what I'm about to kind of put to paper. So, um, and so I'm trying actually not to force myself, um, just personally speaking, that's what I think will work for me. Uh, I'm waiting to kind of feel moved. So when I feel like when I start kind of hearing like, or thinking of phrases and or pieces of dialogue or something like that, then I go to the computer and I see, where that takes me and then when I hit that block I try I'm trying very hard now not to um, kind of sit there and stare at the cursor and like force my way through it (laughs) Um, because I think there's something to be said with it you can always tell when a piece of art is has been forced out of someone or when it's just come out organically out of a feeling or an experience so um, and I'm I'd like to create kind of the latter obviously Mm-hmm. That's good to hear. And honestly, it sounds like you've a lot of the living life has 
taking the pressure off too. Like this stuff of like feeling like you haven't made it yet or, you know, the thing I'm feeling is like, what's the point? If, if things are going to be as bad as they are, why am I even bothering? But you have to like sort of be moved by the process. You have to, yeah. fall, like you say, fall in love with the thing and feel like you need to do it. No, I, and I mean, we're artists, so I think we you know, we feel really deeply sometimes. So heartbreak or like feeling rejected or feeling like we can't do the thing right now feels like a death sentence sometimes. So it might feel impossible and like, you know, like why are we here? Um, But if we can move through that, then, you know. Absolutely. And and I'll say, you know, as a fan of yours, and I know you have many fans, uh, we're excited to see what you've come up with you know, keep at it. <laughs> you've, you've given us hope here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> um, Shoshana, thanks so much for chatting. We'll see you out on the picket line, I'm sure. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Union song, Union battle, all added up, want us all what we got now. Union song, Union battle, Thanks again to Shoshana for joining me. Um, it was a really helpful conversation to me. And, and uh, after as soon as we finished, I, I got to work on a whole bunch of scenes that I needed to write and had been sort of having trouble getting into uh, the past couple of weeks. So thanks, Shoshana. Up next, uh, a really interesting conversation with Matt Williams. I've been doing these, you know, really craft-centered conversations on the podcast lately, and I'm getting so much out of them, and um, I've really enjoyed doing them. So when Matt Williams got in touch asking if he could be on the podcast, it seemed immediately apparent what we should talk about. Matt is the one of the creators of Roseanne, but he only worked on the show for about eight episodes uh, before he was fired. Uh, he then went on to work on a whole bunch of shows. He's created so many shows, uh, including Home Improvement, um, which, of course, ran for over 200 episodes. And he served as showrunner on that show for, for I believe, most of it. Um, he also created a bunch of shows, Thunder Alley, Soul Man, uh, and he's one of the credited creators on The Connors because it is a Roseanne spinoff. Um, he worked on Carol and Company. Uh, he was the co-creator of that, which was a, a short-lived Carol Burnett sketch, kind of a sketch show. You'll hear us talk about it on the podcast today. Um, he's had a really interesting career, so much of which um, was, you know, throughout the 90s and early 2000s, but but really up until today. Um so when he asked if he could be on the show, it seemed very obvious that we should talk about working with actors and working with actors and comedians specifically who are non-writers. And I think Matt does a really great job in this conversation translating that to working with all kinds of non-writers, whether that means you know directors or executives. Um, it's There's a lot to be gleaned from this conversation with Matt Williams. Um, so I thank him for appearing on it, and I thank you for listening. As ever, you can uh, find me over at benblacker.substack.com. Also, I'm on Blue Sky. Blue Sky is great. It's like what Twitter used to be. It's very pleasant, and everyone is like happy to see each other, and nobody is being jerks, uh, at least not yet, which is really nice. Um, find me under my name. Ben Blacker uh, over on Blue Sky, and I am still on Twitter for the time being. Um, but you can still follow me there, and uh, I will post there on occasion. Uh, but mostly the Substack and Blue Sky is where I'm social media living these days. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for reading the newsletter, and thanks for your support. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. And it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Matt Williams is here. Matt, thanks for taking the time. Um, first off, before we get into anything, I want to hear about this new endeavor that you are doing, um, this multimedia project. Do you want to talk about that for a sec? 
Yeah, it's called Glimpses. It started with a book that I've written that will come out right after the first of the year. Uh, Glimpses is a collection of personal essays, all humorous, and what I call spiritual musings. Uh, it was inspired by all the uh, negativity that I heard in the world, all the doomsday and all the, oh, we're doomed. Life is, you know, we're falling apart. And I said, I don't believe that. I believe if we look around and take the time to look around, we'll see little glimpses of God everywhere. And by God, I'm not talking about the white haired guy on a cloud. I'm talking moments of grace and kindness, unexpected compassion, because deep in my heart, I believe there's still goodness in the world, but we just, it gets drowned out by all the algorithms of fear and all the negativity. So it's it's a humorous, it's, it's really a memoir told through humorous essays. And then I do a podcast as well. I bring guests on who are writers, actors, directors, dancers, and talk about the connection between creativity and spirituality. And I'm not talking religious dogma. I don't want anybody to get scared. It's about the the, the spiritual aspect of creating. And um, uh, so I've got the podcast, the book coming out, and I will have some lectures coming out in the next six months too. Oh, that's great. And where can folks learn about like the upcoming lectures and stuff? Uh, on my website, um, uh, mattwilliams.com. I've got a, a web page and I'm on Instagram, so they can find me at both places. Terrific. Um, it's it's funny to hear, you know, you may be the uh, only comedy writer, especially of the eight who, you know, were, was working in the 80s and 90s of your generation, who has this kind of optimism about the world. Where does this come from for you? You know, it's first, I, I do believe there. Uh, I do believe in a higher power. I believe there is a God, however you define God, that there is a, an infinite intelligence, a supreme energy, if nothing else, that creates and animates the entire universe and that God lives in all things, all people. We are all connected. It's not, this isn't a new thought. It goes all the way back to Christian and uh, Jewish mystics believe this, that there is a connection between all human beings. And whatever I think, say, or do, Ben, impacts you in some way or another. We're having this conversation right now. I am connected to you, not just with words, but with our spirits. And so every thought ripples out across the universe and has an impact. And that's why when I was doing sitcoms for all those years, people go, oh, it's just a sitcom. And I go, no, if you make people laugh and you connect millions of households and they're all laughing, and they're all enjoying and releasing endorphins, that's something really special going on. So I, I don't know, I just, I've always been optimistic. I'm not a doomsdayer. Uh, it's real easy to fall into cynicism in Hollywood. And I, I guess my book and my attitude and what I try to do in my life is an antidote to that. Uh, I love to hear that, especially considering some of the, the places you've worked uh, uh, early on and some of the shows that you've created and co-created. Um, and that's going to be our focus today is about working with um, non-writers, you know, non-script writers, we should say. You are the creator of Roseanne. Uh, you're the co-creator of Home Improvement. Um, and you've created a bunch of other shows, too, that folks, you know, especially of my generation know because we watch them on network TV. We only had a few channels. <laughs> Everything just went into the next. Um, but, you know, you, you've listen, it's it's no secret. You've worked with some tough folks on those shows. Can you tell me a little bit about like how you approach that kind of collaboration and and kept this optimism and and spiritual awareness intact. Well, first off, I'll break it down separate from personality. When you're you, when you are collaborating with a non-writer, the first thing you must do is establish a vocabulary because they don't have the same vocabulary as a trained writer who knows his or her craft. So you and I may have a conversation and say, I don't know the inciting incidents too late, or there's not a strong enough major dramatic question, or what's the unifying thought, the spine of the piece? What's the crisis moment? What's the denouement? A non-writer is not gonna have that vocabulary. So when you're working with a non-writer, the first thing you, you, you have to discern is what are they really saying? So if, if you were a non-writer and Ben said to me, Matt, 
this scene doesn't have enough energy. We need more energy. So my writer's brain has to click into gear and I've got to interpret, does that mean there needs to be more conflict? Does that mean, mean the pr protagonist needs to be more active in pursuit of a super objective? Does that mean the antagonist is not presenting enough opposition? Does that mean there's not a conditioning factor on the scene that allows that extra energy to happen? What do you mean when you say it needs to be more exciting? And I've had notes from network executives who say, I don't know, the second act just needs more personality. <laughs> okay. If I say to Ben, give the second act more personality, what does that mean for you? So you've got to really listen and start deciding a vocabulary. And the vocabulary may be, you know, we need a few more tickle moments here. Oh, okay. You just need a little more charm or humor. Or we really need to land here. Okay, what does that mean? Oh, it means there was a decision or discovery made in that scene that wasn't landing strong enough for the audience to feel, or at least for this non-writer to feel. So that's the first thing is, to est is establishing a vocabulary. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And let's dig into that even deeper for a second. Talk about some of your experiences before moving on. Um, do you Did you find over the years that there were commonalities in that kind of language, whether it was from, you know, comedians you were working with or executives you were getting notes from that you could pick those up, you know, the more energy note and say, okay, I know what that means. Did it become easier over time? Oh, yes. Yeah. Because you also watch their body language. You hear the words being said, and it's just, it's just like a playwright standing in the back of the theater. And the second you see the audience start to shift in their seat and kind of stir around, you go, Okay, that means the scene has fallen into talk rather than dramatic action. They're talking about feelings. Right? They're not making decisions, discoveries, and actively pursuing a goal in this scene. It become a talky scene. So that you learn just by doing and watching your audience and getting to know. So with and some network, I don't mean to throw everyone under the bus. Some network executives have given excellent notes. And my rule of thumb was listen to everyone, listen to every note, because one person, Ben may say one thing in that note session that allows me to crack the second act and get home before midnight on a rewrite night. Okay. And as far as dealing with people, you've got to separate personalities and there is a certain detachment. And it depends if you're working with people who are insane or sane. Are they people who are just fighting to get their way? And I'm not naming any names here. Fighting to get their way because they just want to get their way? Or are they really trying to define something that's going to make the scene, the sequence, or the series better? So you have to discern what is um, behavior that is unacceptable as opposed to people who are just passionate and emphatic. And as a result, as a writer, my job is to, first off, I'll pray and surround myself with white light so all that evil can't penetrate my being. <laughs> and secondly, I will really listen to what they're trying to say and go somewhere in this rampage, there may be a moment of truth. There may be something that I need to hear and put on the page. Is that making sense? Absolutely. Um, and, and it's interesting. I mean, I want to sort of drill down on, I mean, we can use home improvement as an example, um, because I think it was really, it, as Roseanne was too, like a successful translation of these comedians' personas. Um, so so let's talk about the beginnings of home improvement and, and like, how did you become the guy? What was sort of set up beforehand? You know, how did it all come together for you? Well, it came together because Jeffrey Katzenberg, I, I created Roseanne, left Roseanne, signed a deal at Disney, did a series with Carol Burnett for a while. And then David and Carmen, my co-creators on Home Improvement, we said, we want to do a series, a half hour series about a father. And we called it Dad as Hero. That was our kind of working title. And we knew we wanted a dad. We all three come from the Midwest. We all have this, came from this, training and family sitcoms, right? And we knew we wanted this dad. At first, we thought maybe he's an insurance adjuster. 
and he's got a house full of kids and a wife, and he's the one who goes and has to do assessments at people's houses. We thought that's funny situations, and he's got to discern, did the guy really fall off the roof? Or, you know. And then Jeffrey Katzenberg called me and said, I, I've got a comedian I want you to meet. And I said, I don't want to work with another comedian. And he said, no, I think you need to meet this guy. And I said, Jeffrey, I don't want to work with another comedian. He says, Matt, and this went on for about two or three weeks. He says, Matt, I'm not asking you to marry him. I'm asking you to go to lunch with him. Would you please go to lunch? And I said, okay. So I took David McFadden with me to the lunch and it was Tim Allen. And I think it was Gene Bly, the casting director. Gene had set, seen Tim at the Montreal Comedy Festival and said, this guy's got something. He's got so I went to this lunch, and in the first five minutes, I felt like I was talking to one of my brothers. We started sharing stories. We started laughing about our families, trading stories about our wives. And this is the God's truth. Halfway through that lunch, there was that little click in my gut. I went, you have to do this. So after the lunch, I'm walking back to my office, and I turned to David McFadden, and, and he'll testify to this. And I said, if we do this show, it's going to be a top 10 show. I just knew it. I knew it in my gut. I knew it in my being, that little true voice inside me. I knew it was going to be a top 10 show. So what we did is we took our idea of dad as hero instead of an insurance adjuster, which may have been funny. You, Tim absolutely brought more power, tools, all of that. And so working with, and here's the smartest thing we did. We took over a year to develop the concept for the show. Because most people, you have, you're, they want it now. You've got to rush. Because I was working with Carol Burnett and wrapping that up. We had a year, and we read Iron John, a book about reclaiming the masculine spirit. We read a book called Deborah Tannen's book called You Just Don't Understand, which the whole premise is men and women speak a different language. And, they, and so they never understand each other. Men are hierarchical. Women look for connection, blah, blah, blah. So we did that and we had meeting after meeting after meeting with Tim talking about it. So when we finally wrote the pilot, we had almost a year of gestation and research and really talking. And so the pilot came together pretty quickly. Uh, it's always hard work, but it came together pretty quickly. Anyway, that's the background to home improvement. That's really interesting. And I'm, I'm curious to hear, and again, this was so long ago that, that you know, you may not recall, but like, did Tim feel like he had a voice? Like this was representing him in the way that, you know, his stand-up represented him? Oh, we protected him. We, oh, we gave him his voice. Here's the curse of working with stand-ups. If you write a pilot with a stand-up comedian and you don't capture their voice, then you're incompetent and you're you're the asshole, right? If you really get to know and understand their voice and write a pilot that is their voice, then you just stole my act. So there's kind of no winning. If you, if you miss the mark, you're doomed. If you hit it, you're doomed. Now, fortunately with Tim, because he is a wonderful human being and a great collaborator and a good man, we, I said very early on to him, we are going to service your voice. This is the voice you created in stand-up right? <laughs> More power. But that is not what the series was about. The series was about the premise that David and, and Carmen and I talked about. Men and women should never, ever, ever live together, ever. But they do. So every week, we're going to examine a marriage, a family, the world through the masculine and the feminine point of view. So people used to think, well, the only reason it succeeded is because they blew up stuff on tool time. And I think one snarky reviewer said, how many toasters can he blow up? The show will never last. Well, they missed the point. They were looking at the rosettas on the icing. They weren't looking at the cake. The cake that supported all the comedy was a dynamic between the male and the constant clash between the masculine and the feminine. Everything from how to cook breakfast to changing the oil in the car. Everything was through that filter. And I think Tim gave over to that because he realized he had his voice. He had his stand-up persona, but we peopled that universe for him 
with with characters that would allow that voice to be uh, frustrated, exaggerated, and made even yeah, funnier. I think that's absolutely right. And it's something that I think comes up, you know, in these sort of like more advanced screenwriting classes is like, first you get your basics. And then the next thing is, how are all of these actions, you know, representative of the theme that you're writing about? And I think that's like, Home Improvement did that really well. I think all of the the shows that you worked on did that really well. Like they were about something at their core. Um, is there something that in all these shows you, you've created, you were looking for something you were interested in exploring particularly? Yes, I, I didn't realize this. And uh, there's there's a couple of things. Anytime I had a series that failed and I had series that failed, it's because we rushed the development process and I didn't ultimately know what the series was about. When I look back and go, the first show I worked on was the Cosby show, family show, right? Celebration of family. David and Carmen and I on Home Improvement said, we want to celebrate American family. With Roseanne, that was my working class family. I wanted to celebrate working class families. I wanted to look at this marriage through that, that blue collar lens. And so anytime it came from a very personal, let's call it an authentic place, it worked. It always worked, regardless of who I was working with. It worked. That's true in movies, too. If it came from an authentic, when it came from a mindset of let's create a product, how do we put this demographic with this and create a world where we can sell it? It always failed. So when it came from my heart, it, it, it succeeded. When I started listening to too many voices and when I turned into Matt the Mogul and started grinding out series after series, they didn't all work because I was rushing them. They weren't coming from an authentic place. That's really interesting. It makes a lot of sense, right? This is, again, this is a lesson we tell new writers, especially over and over again, is write the thing you're passionate about, write the thing you care about. Um, let's talk about Carol Burnett for a moment. Um, you know, Carol is, I guess, a non-writer, but I feel like this is, she can do anything. Um, but just, I'm curious to hear about that experience. I think the, the Carol Burnett is, is a comic genius. There's no question. There's no one in the history of television. I can't imagine. You can ho hold up maybe Jack Benny, Jack Gleason, uh, Lucy. But Carol Burnett is in that pantheon of comedians, right? I And we were trying to do an anthology series which is really tough. So because you're basically writing a half hour pilot every week, creating a character, creating a world every week. Carol's Carol comes out of sketch comedy where you play at a character. I come from a world where you embody the character and all the humor comes out of a worldview, not bada bing jokes, but a worldview or an attitude. So it was a, She's genius, but it was difficult. One, the grind of knocking out a pilot every week for 22 weeks. And two, tonally, tone is always the most ineffable element when you're creating a series or a movie. Tone, we can all agree it's funny. It's a humorous you know, piece. But what is the tone? Is it dark humor? Is it slapstick humor? How broad is it? How rooted in reality? And so Carol is a sketch comedy artist. And so that it was hard to reconcile sketch comedy with trying to create characters every week. But um, and the show did well. I think it, the grind got to everyone. So uh, uh, it, it, when it ended, I think everyone was tired and ready for it. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> um, this aspect of collaborating um, with non-writers, of course, extends to. Uh, once the show is up and running, right? It's not just about running the show. It's not about starting the show, but about working with actors. Uh, and oftentimes, again, you've worked with so many comedians in their first uh, scripted shows. I'm curious to hear about just that process and working with basically non-actors to help them become actors. Well, to Tim's credit, Tim Allen went to David Regal in Detroit who happened to be my wife's acting teacher in Detroit. David Regal is a brilliant teacher. And Tim went and studied with him and took acting lessons. 
And so before we ever shot the pilot, Tim went and studied acting and he learned about subtext. He learned about intention. He learned about having a super objective. He learned about transitions. He learned, And he worked with David Regal. So by the time we shot the pilot, he was a trained actor. And so that really helped. What happens if you have a non-actor, but they're a funny person, you make sure the people around them can act really well. And you kind of make the scenes actor-proof. And by that, I mean, you give the other characters sometimes the drive or the tra beat transitions so that the non-actor doesn't have to make an emotional transition in the middle of the scene. Now, this is getting into esoteric stuff with writing, but it's just about, it's like writing for kids. Never give a child the cue line for the other character. You always give it to an adult who, who's going to ask, wait, why are you eating that salt? And the kid will respond. Or did you open that? So the kid, you don't expect the kid to make the transitions and drive the scene. You have to have an adult drive the scene. So if you have a non-actor, you kind of find the ballast in the ship, so to speak, so that someone's driving the scene along with that person. And oftentimes... The comedian wants to be reactive anyway because they're most often they're funniest when they're reacting to someone else, right? You think of the great comedians, Jack Benny and all these other ones. I'm going old, old school now when I reference him. But he was brilliant at reacting to the other characters as opposed to driving the scene. That's interesting. And then you've also, you know, in surrounding your comedian actors with trained actors, you have to communicate with them as well about this stuff. And, and uh, I just love to hear because you, you've been a director, too, for many years. You, here's a, tr a trick that experienced directors know. You can direct the other actor, the non-actor, by directing the actor. So if I'm doing a scene and Ben is the non-actor and I'm talking to uh, the seasoned actor, I'll just call that seasoned actor John. And you're Ben, you're the non-actor. I would say, John, this is a really good scene. You know, when you come in here, you know Ben is upset because what Ben really wants you to do is put down the cough because he wants to start a conversation. But John, you don't want to have that. So I'm directing you by directing John. I'm feeding to Ben everything he needs for that scene without asking him to do anything. And automatically, Ben's going to start doing what I need in that scene, right? And it's not manipulation. It's just a matter of, is the information, if Ben's a trained actor, I would go, Ben, you don't have a clear intention in this scene. You're playing generalities. You're, you're, I don't know what you want. What is your objective in this scene? Well, if you're a non-actor, you're going to look at me with crossed eyes and go, huh? But if I say, John, the only thing you're trying to do in this scene is to get Ben to slap you. You're going to piss him off so he slaps you. Go at it. And the last thing Ben wants to do is touch you. So let's see what happens in this scene. So you've set up a dynamic between the two, the two characters. Now, both are real broad, obvious directions, but you, you see how the dynamic can work? At a certain point, listen, you've written so many episodes of television and, and show run so many shows like this becomes second nature. But when you are actually in the writing process, how much are you conscious of, you know, character objective and scene objective and all these technical things that we do think about sort of in the back of our mind. I'm constantly, it's basic dramaturgy. I'm constantly aware of it. I'm, you know, I can't write a scene unless I know Ben's intention in this scene. Ben walks in to his son's bedroom. What's his intention? Is it to chastise him for what he did at school? Is it to draw information out? Is it to tickle him before he goes to bed? What are you doing in this scene? I, and this is where I was always known as the joke buster because comedian, uh, people who write situation comedies love jokes and they go, oh, this is, I, and I would say, no, it sounds like a joke, throw it out. Because I always wanted to know what are the characters doing in this scene? What's the attitude? What's the worldview? The last thing I want to laminate onto the scene is the joke so that the humor would come out of the worldview. I'll give you a perfect example. Tim's worldview was so specific, so myopic, more power fixed everything, right? <sighs> well, all you have to say is Jill's got to walk into the kitchen and say, honey, oh, darn, the toaster's broken. 
He doesn't have to say anything. He just looks at the toaster and people start laughing, right? And in the old, old days of comedy, all going all the way back to Commedia, Commedia, there was the Lazzi. What was your stick? What was your thing? Were you and Moliere wrote all of his comedies with this, the misanthrope, the imaginary invalid. So you take a, an attribute and exaggerate it, and the comedy comes out of that. So you think of Lucille Ball wasn't was not joke driven per se. It was driven by her obsessive want to be in show business and always being thwarted, right? Always trying to find a way to get on stage, all of this. So anyway, I can go off into the weeds in this, but attitude worldview is more important than jokes. I appreciate jokes, but 30 jokes of a script does not a sitcom make. I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's interesting, like this is this work is all of the the early work too, right? The designing characters, the the creation of the world and all of that, oh, yeah. making sure all of that is built in. As soon as you have a strong point of view, you begin orchestrating characters to conflict with, affirm, push against that point of view. And people call it sitcoms. That's a, that's a misnomer. That's It's really not. They're character comps. The best situation comedies are really character comps. And you think of something like Cheers. Those people in that bar, all they have to do is open their mouth about anything. And someone's going to have a, an opposing opinion. And you're again, that's a good example. Sam Malone, a lovely woman walks into his bar and he turns and looks at her. Everyone starts laughing because they know he's the ultimate womanizer, right? So you're, you're setting up worldview, point of view. And again, it, it goes back to what are you trying to say about the human condition? Um. I want to shift gears a little bit and just I'm curious to hear about working in half hour television in the, you know, mid 80s to sort of the end of the 90s. Um, this was a different television landscape. I mean, look, five years ago was a different television landscape, but this was wildly different. I, I say this to my students at Columbia when I, I'm such an old man that when I started in television, there were three networks and an upstart called Fox. And there was this cable program that showed movies without commercials called HBO. Okay, that's the beginning of my career on Cosby Show. Flash forward to now. Look at the arc of that, how much it's changed. And I think the main difference for me working in the 80s and the 90s, I came out of theater. I came, I came at television as a playwright. So we recorded all of our shows in front of a live audience. They weren't single camps. So we had 300 live bodies every show. We would shoot in the afternoon without an audience. So we knew we had it in the can. And then at night, we'd have 300 people. And it was like doing a one-act play. In fact, I think my success in TV, especially early in TV, was I never thought of it as sitcom. I thought of it as, as a funny one-act every week. So... What people don't understand, when you have a live audience and you're taping on a Thursday or a Friday, the script's got to be done and locked. That means you write all night. We used to have 12, 14, 16 hours every Monday and Tuesday to get the script right. And then probably have an 11-hour, 12-hour day on Wednesday. And then finally, toward the end, you only have a 10-hour day. And we've worked most weekends to keep up with it because you're feeding the beast. Now, with single camps, where you write many of the scripts ahead of time and, and you've got to do your pre-production. So you bank all your scripts. You don't have the writer's room scrambling all hours of the morning, trying to get ready for the taping on Friday. So that's the big difference. Also, there was more freedom. Well, I, I can't say that. I've never worked with a streaming service, so I can't say that. I, that would be false. Um, I did see that when you got into vertical integration and studios started owning networks and networks were on the, the number of people giving you notes quadrupled and the marketing department and uh, all these different departments had far more say in what you could and could not do with your characters. Where I was fortunate enough when I was coming off Cosby, I did uh, A Different World with, uh, created that with John Marcus and, and Carmen Finastra developed it. And then Roseanne Home Improvement, there was very little interference from the network. They gave us notes, but the one note I remember with Home Improvement, they kept saying, Tim's got to have a daughter. 
wouldn't it be fun to see him with a little girl? And we kept saying no, because we wanted Jill outnumbered and outgunned, right? We want a house full of men. And she, again, it goes back to the male-female point of view. She's outnumbered and outgunned. She's got to be strong. <laughs> You've been such a part of like the fabric of television. Uh, and and I think like that's, people don't really get to be that anymore. You know, like that, those opportunities to create shows and have them go for even one season of 25 episodes are gone. Um, so your insights are really appreciated. Uh, let's wrap up as we always do by asking you what you're watching on television these days. What is getting you excited or inspired? Well, I, I'm uh, uh, Ted Lasso without a doubt. I think it's one of the best sitcoms of the last 15 years. I like shrinking. I enjoyed every episode of that. I thought that was great. I got my wife got me hooked on the diplomat, Harry Russell piece. And then uh, I was talking to a reporter. He was doing an interview uh, about my book, Glimpses. We were talking about that. And he said, there's something on Netflix you should check out. It's called Crash Landing on You. And it's it's a South Korean series uh suspenseful but romantic comedy and it's 16 episodes and i thought i'm gonna give it a try and i've been captivated by this in fact we watched another episode last night we kind of sparse out the ep episode so we don't we're not going to binge watch it because we want to enjoy it every other day or so uh, but crash landing on you has been one of the uh true gems that someone suggested that Steven suggested this uh, this interviewer, and I've really enjoyed it. It's so quirky. The tone is so unusual. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, you you will see. It's really well made. That sounds great. I'll check it out. Yeah. Do you feel like comedy has changed uh, in the past twenty five years? You know, I think funny is funny is funny, but when it become here's here's. When it's when it's human, there isn't anything in the world more interesting than human behavior, right? When you watch someone and go, "Why are they doing that? Why are they obsessively paint, petting their dog, or why do they shave their eyebrows off?" You know, you're watching this and you're going, "Why?" So when comedy comes out of behavior and human relationships, I think it's always universal and timeless. I think. I don't like, and this is my personal bet, I don't like snarky, mean-spirited. I can't remember which great playwright said many years ago that the essence of comedy is to ridicule without pain. And I kind of keep that in the back of my mind, to ridicule without pain. I don't want to hurt some. I can make fun of Ben all I want. I can tease him. I can talk about his dog. But if my intent is to hurt him through that comedy, then to me, it's, it's no longer funny. And I, I think because I worked in family sitcoms, I believe family sitcoms tend to be universal because whether you grew up in Australia, Germany, Nigeria, Bolivia, you had a family, whether you liked them or not. And there is something about the family dynamic that that is universally understood by every audience. And I think... I, I don't think I'm making this up. I remember someone, this is 20, 30 years ago, said, well, you realize every successful show on television is in essence a family, a surrogate family. And you think of classic sitcoms and you go, even friends, it's a family. It really is. It, you go back to family dynamics because that's identifiable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, we'll leave it there, Matt. Thank you so much for chatting. Okay, Ben. It's been a pleasure.